Welcome to Porter Wright's Antitrust Law Source. Hello again, this is Jay Levine from the D.C. office of Porter Wright, Morris & Arthur. Thank you for joining us. And this segment will be on Section 1 of the Sherman Act, giving you an overview as to what it means, what it says, and more importantly, what are the types of business conduct that Section 1 of the Sherman Act might possibly invalidate. So, if you remember from an earlier podcast, Section 1 of the Sherman Act is the act that makes it illegal for two or more companies, two or more actors, to agree in some way to restrain trade. The actual text of the act reads, every contract combination in the form of a trust or otherwise or conspiracy in restraint of trade or commerce among the several states or the four nations is declared to be illegal. All that means is you need two actors to get together and do something bad, something that harms trade, something that harms the competitive process. So let's break down these elements for a moment. First, there must be an agreement, and the agreement must be among two different actors. Now, if you just look at the agreement element, the agreement need not be in writing. There need not be a smoking gun. Agreements may be inferred from circumstantial evidence. The proverbial wink and a nod can serve as, a, as an agreement. Co-conspirators, once you're in an agreement, you're a co-conspirator, and a co-conspirator is held jointly and severally liable for the other party's actions. So um, that can be, you may be the small fish in a very large conspiracy. Nevertheless, you are on the hook for damages for everything all the uh, bigger companies did. It does require two or more actors. We will get into later on what happens when the companies that are quote-unquote conspiring are sister companies, a parent and a, and a subsidiary, affiliates, things like that. The general rule, just not to keep you in suspense, is that a parent and a wholly owned subsidiary are not capable of conspiring. They are not two different economic actors. They act with the same economic vision towards the same objectives. And therefore, the Supreme Court has held that it's called the Copperweld Doctrine that they are not capable of conspiring for Section 1 purposes. What happens when it's not wholly owned? What happens when they're sister corporations? Again, most courts have held in those situations that they're not capable of conspiring as well. But now you're getting into a little bit thornier of a topic, and not every court agrees with one another. Okay, but going back, we have um, element number one, there's an agreement. Element number two, that agreement is inherently uh, among two different economic actors. And that agreement must unreasonably restrain trade. What does it mean to unreasonably restrain trade? We'll get there in a second. Finally, there is an interstate or foreign commerce um, element. If the only commerce that is affected is intrastate, meaning within the state itself, then the federal laws do not apply. In this day and age, it is very, very, almost inconceivable. It's very, very difficult to conceive of a situation where interstate commerce would not be affected. 
And this issue was rarely litigated. Um, and for the most part, almost every conduct you're going to encounter will already satisfy this element. Under state law, obviously, this is not a requirement itself. Okay. Now, what does it mean that the conduct is unreasonable? Now, there are two different ways under the, under the case law that has developed on the Section 1 of the Sherman Act, two different ways of determining whether a given course of conduct, um, given, quote-unquote, restraint of trade, is unreasonable or not. One mode of analysis is called the per se rule. And the per se rule basically says if you engage in the conduct, it's illegal. We do not look further. We do not look into the market impact. We don't look into anything. Now, per se conduct, it's condemned without any inquiry and is really reserved for the most egregious of antitrust violations, including price fixing, bid rigging, uh, market allocation, uh, customer allocation, things along those nature. The Supreme Court has basically held that they have enough experience with it that it as a matter of judicial economy and as a matter of common sense, these, these types of conducts will almost always be found violative of the antitrust laws and therefore they're not going to force plaintiffs or the government to engage in detailed market inquiry um, to determine what they essentially already know. But you should understand from the list of potential activity that I gave that could fall under the per se rule, it's few and far between. Price fixing, I think everybody knows. Output fixing, bid rigging, those are the types of things that fall under the per se rule. The vast majority of conduct for Section 1 of the Sherman Act is analyzed under what we call the rule of reason. Now, the rule of reason is a flexible inquiry that weighs the potential benefits of the conduct against the potential harms or the already demonstrated harms of the action. And essentially, it's a little bit like a big stew. You put in all the pro-competitive benefits of the conduct. You put in all the anti-competitive effects of the conduct. You mix it around, and you see whether, on balance, the conduct is pro-competitive, in which case it passes muster, competitively neutral, in which case it also passes antitrust muster, or is anti-competitive, in which case it would be condemned under the antitrust laws. Now, I'm sure you're asking, okay, well, what sorts of factors go into this stew? What are the ingredients for the rule of reason stew? Well, there are a few of them, and the rule of reason inquiry itself is sort of tailored to the conduct at issue, but these are the types of things that judges and antitrust enforcers take into account. First, the purpose or the nature of the restraint. Why are you doing this? If you're doing it to raise prices, that's probably not going to be an effective defense. But if you're doing it because you're trying to be more efficient, if you're trying to, in other words, let's say you're trying to become more vertically integrated so you can make your downstream product at an even lower cost, and try to undercut some of the competition. Well, that would obviously be a pro-competitive benefit of whatever conduct you're engaging in. Um, they also want to know the market definition. They want to know what is the, what are the parameters of the market in which 
uh, you are competing. And the reason that's important is for the next part is because they want to get a sense of how big the players are. So the market power of the parties. Now, market power is not necessarily synonymous with market share. But for right now, let's just use market share as a proxy. And in future podcasts, we'll, we'll get into the sort of the difference um, from an economic and antitrust point of view between market share and market power. But for right now, let's, they're, they're roughly the same. So you want to know what the market share of the parties that are engaging in the conduct as well as the parties that are being harmed. Any efficiency justifications? Is it making you more efficient? Are you able to produce your good or service at lower cost? And obviously, what is the net effect on competition, which is kind of the ultimate question that, it's, that is being asked. Okay. So those are the types of things that a judge or the enforcement agency will take into account. Now, if you look at the types of conduct that companies can engage in, some are horizontal in nature. And again, when we say horizontal, we mean between competitors, any agreement between competitors is obviously um, needs to be looked at a little bit more carefully than agreements with suppliers or downstream distributors, just because agreements among competitors have a, have a greater likelihood of having a negative effect on competition. So what are the types of horizontal restraints um, that companies can engage in. Well, we mentioned a few of them under the per se rule, price fixing, fixing output, bid rigging, um, customer allocation, geographic market allocation. Under the rule of reason, here are some of the types of conduct that often get judged under the rule of reason. And again, they involve conduct between competitors. Information exchanges, competitors exchange information of all types, um, fairly often, but when they start to exchange competitively sensitive information, even if though there's no necessarily there's no necessary agreement on output or prices, that can be problematic. Credit reporting could, in certain instances, um, raise red flags. Joint purchasing, again, under certain instances, it's wholly pro-competitive, but in other instances, it can be quite anti-competitive. Standard setting, when, a, when competitors agree on a certain standard on how they're going to produce their goods or services. Um, now, while at, you know, instinctively, we might think that that's horrible, but, you know, standard setting goes on all the time. Our, our communication system, our, certainly our mobile communication system, could not exist without um, without standards that everybody agrees to, um, and that essentially promotes innovation. Think about the USB ports we use. That's the product of standard setting. So in many respects, it can be very pro-competitive, but as you can imagine, um, in many respects, wouldn't be. Uh, sometimes there are joint ventures that are competitively benign, but they can, while with under the auspices of the joint venture, the joint venture partners who may be competitors agree on other stuff that goes a little bit beyond the joint venture and can have um, uh, a diminishing effect on competition. A non-compete clause in the sale of a business that too needs to be um, 
analyzed. Um, in today's day and age, there's many non-competes attendant with the sale of a business. And as long as they're reasonable in scope and duration, they're generally going to pass antitrust muster. But when they go beyond reason- reasonableness, that's when the antitrust laws come into play. Let me elaborate now on a few sort of commonplace uh, business activities that you should be aware of could give rise to Section 1 issues. The first is trade association meetings. Now, again, the vast majority of trade association meetings, even when they have competitors coming together, are either pro-competitive or certainly competitively benign. Um, But um, in days gone by, they were considered potential walking conspiracies because of the obvious potential that is inherent any time competitors get together to discuss uh, business items. So you just need to know, you need to uh, be use common sense pretty much. Avoid topics that you would not normally discuss with your competitors. Make sure each meeting has an agenda and keep to the meeting. Try to avoid rump sessions or these ad hoc meetings of trying to fix the industry. Prepare minutes of the meetings. That will allow you to demonstrate that you weren't doing what maybe some antitrust enforcers or cynical plaintiffs um, think you're doing. Um, To the extent possible, counsel should be at important meetings. Um, Association counsel should certainly review the minutes of the meetings. And uh, again, I can't reiterate enough that if there's going to be sensitive topics raised, have antitrust counsel at the meeting Um, Have them prepare a compliance statement that is read and agreed to by everyone in advance of the meeting and have her participate in the meeting to make sure that you don't inadvertently do something you're going to regret later. Beyond trade association meetings, obviously there are certain things you should not discuss and, God forbid, agree with your competitors about. Prices, past, present, or future, you should... Generally, stay away from discussion of prices with your competitors. What constitutes a fair profit level, possible increases or decreases in price, even if you're doing it in in sort of relative or percentage form. Uh, Standardization or or stabilization of prices should not be a topic of discussion. Different credit terms or discounts, anything affecting price should be stayed away from. Um, allocating markets should not be certainly agreed to, but shouldn't even be discussed. If the entire industry is mad at a renegade competitor, um, it's probably better not to engage in discussions with other competitors about what the renegade is doing. That may be fraught with peril, depending on what that competitor is doing and what your discussions lead to. Probably best to um, ask counsel whether what the renegade is doing is lawful and what your rights are, but um, rarely will vigilante justice um, land you in any good place. Uh, Future plans, future products, future services should not be discussed with, with competitors. Essentially anything that's competitively sensitive, you really should sort of stay away from. And again, should stay away from merely discussing it. Certainly, you should stay away from any agreements on it. Uh, now, exchanging 
information happens at a variety of levels and for a variety of reasons. And for that reason, one can't say that it is all good or all bad. Um, But generally, the more competitively sensitive information, the more problematic the exchange of that information becomes. Now, unlike an agreement on prices, the exchange of pricing information or of any other competitively sensitive information is judged under the rule of reason. So there may be a pro-competitive reason for exchanging that information, and you get the opportunity to present it, unlike under the per se rule, you don't get to. But the, at the end of the day, the question will be, will the exchange of that information lead to higher average prices? And sometimes it's unknowable, and sometimes we just have to take our best business guesstimate. The exchange, the examples of, you know, competitively sensitive information that gets exchanged are current or future prices or wages. There's a a variety of uh, class actions brought by nurses against hospitals that exchanged uh, employee wage information with respect to nurses that have landed them in a lot of um, hot water and have resulted in numerous uh, settlements in the millions. Current or future costs, often uh, companies want to exchange that. Projected service, planned entry or exit into the market, all of that type of information are sort of red flags. Now, again, it depends on the context because when you're doing due diligence for a deal, some of this information needs to be found out. And there are ways in a framework under which that information is exchanged at the appropriate time with the appropriate safeguards. All I can tell you is that if the exchange of the information leads to what we call interdependent pricing decisions, that can be problematic because now I know your information, you know mine, and inherently I'm going to price knowing sort of how you are going to price your own products. And that will develop an interdependency that is the antithesis of uh, competition. What factors go into determining whether a certain exchange is problematic or not? First, the susceptibility of the relevant market to any interdependent um, behavior or to tacit collusion. If three competitors exchanged price information and um, the market includes 100 and the three are small players, Um, it's unlikely that that exchange of price information will have a meaningful impact on the market. Obviously, the nature of the information exchanged, if it's pricing that is two years old and outdated, it's not going to do anyone much good. I'll query why anyone would want to exchange such information. But assuming the companies do, it's unlikely to have much of an effect in today's day and age. Is the information otherwise publicly available? Can you, we're exchanging it, but if you wanted to, you know, put some time and effort into it, you could get it on your own. That also matters a great deal. Is the information being exchanged just as is, or are there instructions on how to use it and what you're supposed to be doing with it? Depending on what those instructions are, that may or may not benefit the situation. Um, And... The other, the other issue is, is the information being exchanged directly among the competitors 
Are they doing this through a third party? Is the third party creating some sort of aggregate report that gives some strategic insight into the market but does not allow any one company to determine what its competitors are doing um, for any given product or service? Many trade associations do collect information, do aggregate it, and do report back on a much more global industry basis. And that information is useful for general business planning purposes, but isn't useful in any competitive um, situation day to day, which is what the antitrust lawyers like to hear. Okay, there is, and I mentioned this once before, in the healthcare guidelines. Uh, they do give a safe harbor as to when certain price information can be exchanged where one can assume that nothing anti-competitive would result. Um, These are the elements of the safe harbor. First, the exchange is implemented by and through a third party. Second, the data is at least three months old. Now, Whether three months old means anything in any particular industry um, has to be a discussion between you and your counsel. In the healthcare industry, the enforcers assume three months old is old enough. The statistics are based on uh, a compilation from at least five distinct companies. Again, whether five is enough in any given industry is a discussion you're going to have to have with your counsel. But this is what the enforcers came up with um, in the healthcare guidelines. Fourth, no single company's data is worth or accounts for more than 25% of the ultimate statistics. And finally, the information is sufficiently aggregated or masked so that you cannot extrapolate the information, the prices or costs of any given company. If you could, obviously, then all of the aggregation has has been for naught. Okay, so that's exchanging of price information. Now let me turn to joint purchasing. As its name implies, joint purchasing just means that it's an agreement among, usually competitors, to purchase together. Ostensibly, they would be able to achieve certain volume discounts. Now, an agreement among purchasers that simply fix the price that the purchasers are willing to pay is a price-fixing agreement and is per se illegal under the antitrust laws. If me and my competitor decide we're just going, we're we're going to tell our joint our supplier who supplies us both with paper that we're only going to pay a dollar a ream and not anything more, that would be per se illegal. But a legitimate joint purchasing venture essentially provides some integration of purchasing functions that achieves efficiencies in addition to whatever cost savings they're able to achieve as a result of their purchasing power. Um, Here, too, there's an antitrust safety zones included in the healthcare statement. And this one only has two elements, actually. Uh, the participants' purchases account for less than 35% of the total sales of the purchased product or service in the relevant market. In other words, this entire group buys less than 35% of what is being sold in the market. So its ability to affect broadly the price being paid in the market um, is 
somewhat minimal. But in addition to that, there is another is that the cost of the product or purchase through the program accounts for less than 20% of the total revenues from all products and services sold by each participant. So in other words, if A and B get together to buy paper that they both use in their in the making of their paper mache airplanes and they account jointly for less than 35% of all the purchases of paper in the relevant market, well, they've satisfied number one. But if paper accounts for more than 20% or more of the revenue that either company gets from selling their paper mache airplanes, that would be problematic. And the reason is if you and I are jointly purchasing an input that we both use in our downstream product where we compete in selling and making that downstream product, but that input is such a large percentage of our cost in making it, then our downstream prices are more than likely going to be very, very similar. It is another way of decreasing the price competition between us. And that is why, in terms of the safe harbor, the uh, percentage that the government put it at is 20%, where the input cost cannot be more than 20% of the revenue of that product. Now, GPOs, group purchasing organizations, are large joint um, purchasing agreements. Um, and they can be very effective and very pro-competitive. Um, if you belong to a GPO, good for you. If you're thinking of starting a GPO, uh, some, of the, some of the things you need to think about, and even if you're just a member of the GPO, some of the things you need to think about are, are you excluding companies and creating a barrier to smaller suppliers? Um, sometimes GPO contracting practices obtain very favorable terms which is wonderful, yet that can have the effect of being exclusive between the contracting supplier and the purchasers. And you got to be very careful about who you admit and who you exclude. And if it turns out that you need to be a member of the GPO to effectively compete and you are locking out some percentage of the market, uh, you can rest be sure that that percentage of the market is going to come and complain and argue that you are either engaging in conspiracy to monopolize the market or in straight Section 1 conduct um, that is in restraint of trade. Requiring members to purchase only through the GPO can be problematic. When you sole source with manufacturers upstream, again, that could be a good thing, but depending on how big and how much purchasing power your GPO has. If you sole source with one vendor, it is entirely possible that the excluded vendor may have problems. If you give different discounts for different volumes, um, that could be issues. If you have bundled and multi-product discounts, which are usually a good thing, but can be problematic, which we will discuss in a later podcast. Um, And also, if you engage in very long-term contracts that exclude others from the market for a long period of time, that too could raise issues. Again, I'm not saying that any of these are definitively bad, but they're just things you need to keep in mind when you come across them and at the appropriate time engage competent counsel to advise you. Well, 
that's it for horizontal restraints for an overview. Um, I think that's enough for now. Again, this has been Jay Levine. I'm a partner in the D.C. office of Porter Wright, Morris, and Arthur. If you have any suggestions for a future podcast or wish to be a guest, please let us know. If you have any uh, suggestions for a better title for this series um, or for a better tagline, please let us know. You are welcome to follow me, and I invite you to follow me on Twitter at at J.L. Levine. That's J-A-Y-L-L-E-V-I-N-E. Or please connect with me on LinkedIn. For now, this is Jay Levine. Have a great day. Porter Wright Morrison Arthur LLP offers this content for informational purposes only as a service for our clients and friends. This content is not intended as legal advice for any purpose and you should not consider it as such. All rights reserved.